Hi, I'm Renee Wilman. I'm a performance consultant and coach. I have a professional sporting background as a professional tennis player and traveled across the world competing for over a decade. I studied and lived in the USA for eight years where I completed my master's degree in psychology and cognitive science. I'm passionate about health, fitness, and mental well-being. And I'm Mike Cooper. And while I started my career in technology and IT originally, I've spent the last 15 years exploring high performance in sport and business as a mental conditioning expert and as an executive coach. I have worked with, among others, the Proteus, the Springboks, as well as Olympic athletes. I've also worked with top executives in South Africa and international companies as a team coach or as an executive coach. My focus has really been on improving performance at an individual level, a team level, with a strong focus on wellness for the individual, the team, and the company. And together, this is the Mike and Rainier Show. So in today's session, Rainier and I have a look at topics very much related to COVID. We have a look at terms like COVID fatigue, moral injury, toxic optimism, and then have a look at a couple of things that you could perhaps do if you find yourself suffering from COVID fatigue at the moment. Hope you enjoy it. So welcome to the Mike and Rainier Show. How are you today, Rania? I'm good, Mark. How are you doing? Yeah, good. So we in Gauteng, we're into wave three of COVID, um, and uh, it seems to be front of mind for everyone. So today's show should be interesting as you and I talk a little bit about what's going on for people. Um, some of the things that you might be hearing, terms like COVID fatigue. Rania's got a really interesting study on, on moral injury. A lot of my corporate clients are talking about toxic optimism. What do these things mean? Like how does it apply to us? And then hopefully we can also give you some tips around what you can do if you are at home or if you're having to work during this time. How do you keep your energy up and make sure that you you look after yourself? So, Renier, um, COVID fatigue, it's a term everyone's talking about. How do you understand it? So the way I understand COVID fatigue is that we've we've been in this COVID world, well, in South Africa at least, since around last year, March, and it's been like a continual stress all the time since then. No one's really had a had a moment to kind of relax. We're like in wave one, out of wave one, wave two, now we're in wave three. So COVID fatigue, the way I understand it, is that that stress is just built up and up and up and up and up and and now people are kind of like okay well what now we can't live like this forever so people almost get into a bit of a breaking point after just being in this stressful almost covid war zone for so long where they've got no control really about what's what's going on i mean we get a family meeting call and then we all sit to our TVs or YouTube, wherever you watch the family meeting and, and the next stressful event just starts again and again. And, and there's no real end in sight. Um, I, I feel for a lot of people in South Africa, at least, it just feels like it's just dragging on and now people are getting tired of it. And they are getting used to working at home and then having to go back to the office and then back at home. So it's it just all the change, all the stress, 
all the health issues, worried about family, friends, it's, it's all just getting too much. And, and that's kind of the, 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 my understanding of what COVID fatigue is, is kind of, kind of is now. Um, it's another layer on top of just getting stressed from work. So, I mean, I don't know if I you agree. have anything to add on that one. I agree. And I, th- I, I think it gets complicated as well, particularly in current conditions. Um, I think most, many South Africans, wave one doesn't seem to affect us that much. We were in heavy lockdown, but it didn't, we didn't know people getting sick. You know, there were fewer people, but now by wave three, um, particularly if you're in Kharteng, I think many of us know people who are sick or who, who have lost people. So the, the stress seems to be so much higher. And then I think as South Africans, we have the, the double whammy of going to the corruption trial at the moment and we're hearing so much around corruption. So there's, there's a fatigue there. Um, and then load shedding in the middle of winter. So having now to try and work from home, teach your kids from home and you've got load shedding. Um, so now you've got a, all that extra stress of trying to manage your day around load shedding. I think all those things just really make people exhausted. When I chat to my clients, there's a frustration, there's a, an exhaustion. And like you say, the, the end doesn't seem to be in sight. I think many of us uh, perhaps were hoping that the vaccine would roll out a lot quicker and then that might start opening up doors and uh, give a form of protection, but the rollout seems to be super slow. So not to be negative, but when you lay these things on top of one another, I think it's quite understandable why people are, are a little bit down and, and exhausted. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I mean, you mentioned an interesting point of load shedding. I mean, I really didn't think we can add another layer on top and then load shedding hit. And now all of a sudden we're in the third wave. You've got to work from home. And if you don't have a generator or an inverter or or something, you really, you, you've got a bit of a problem. I mean, it, I don't have a, a generator or inverter. And two weeks ago, I was running around trying to to have a Zoom meeting. It was, it was a bit of a stress. I mean, it was just something I didn't think was going to happen. The talking to corporate clients as well, they seem to be stuck in this place at the moment of um, making decisions at the moment. Um, so that adds to the stress as well because some cl- some corporates are putting pressure on people to perhaps start coming back to the office. People are thinking, should I start going back to the office? Um, kids going back to school. Um, and so having to make those calls at the moment as well, I think are also people not knowing like which way should I go. Um, and, and some tough decisions are going to be made over the next little while around what are the options. Um, one of the large clients that I'm talking to is quite interesting because they started opening negotiations with people who can now apply to permanently work from home. And so some are starting to make that decision. Is this something that I'd like to make permanent um, because I can apply for it depending on my role? And that. That's something that they're looking at decisions that are being made. So I think we we're living in a in a world that is unprecedented, um, and that adds the fatigue. So why do you think people are so tired from a stress perspective, Renia? Because that's really your your expertise. So so the reason I think people are so fatigued from a stress environment or stress perspective is just because we are not. Get creating good boundaries and good lifestyle choices at the moment to manage that stress effectively. So it's it's hard to build a good routine when 
new example, get out of wave number one, it starts opening up a little bit, you starting to go back to work. And so your normal is changing all the time. And then December rolls around and you've got to go back to working from home and you have to set up a new office at home again. So, so there's so many areas that are changing all the time. And every time that happens, we have to try and adapt to a new situation. And then constantly we consuming different kinds of media that's also making us get really stressed because we next thing we see COVID cases are over it's, oh no it's up to a thousand two thousand three thousand four thousand so the whole time we consume different media we are seeing different things happening from from that COVID perspective and then it again triggers our stress response we are getting emails at home at eight, nine o'clock at night. And now we're actually checking them because we're sitting in front of our computer at home. So th there are certain things that are changing all the time that, that are just continuously putting stress on top. And then if you might have kids, you've got to try and teach those kids from home. I mean, most parents aren't teachers, so that's going to create more stress. And now with the third wave, especially in, in Gauteng at the moment, people are hearing about friends, family, work colleagues who have COVID. Now that adds stress again. And then now people are getting worried, are we going to get vaccines? Because now who knows when that's going to happen. The corruption trial that you mentioned, oh, are you going to get load shedding? So it's just too many stresses, too many triggers at the moment that are just getting people going every single day. And it's interesting that before before we had COVID, the, the World Health Organization said that if you live in a in a westernized society, which which most of us in Joburg or Cape Town or some of the biggest cities in South Africa do, you've got 13 to 15 stressful events a day where your stress your stress axis gets activated. Now, I think in the time of COVID, if they do that research again, I'm hoping that the, the new study is going to come out soon. That's probably gone up because every time somebody checks their phone about a COVID a COVID alert or something like that, probably gets another trigger. So I think that's probably gone up even even higher. And and now we've got to get even better at managing that stress and turning that stress system off. So it, it's definitely I, I do feel for people at the moment uh, trying to manage everything. I think it's very hard for for pretty much everyone. Great. So. So what's happening in the in, in the body with that is you get the hormone shift to fight flight. Um, certain hormones in the body, like cortisol, kick up. Um, your brain function shifts. Um, people sleep less um, because they they're stressed and nervous. Um, then on top of that, people are sitting for large portions of the day. So, um, which I, is not healthy. Um, so. They're not using their bodies. They're not moving around. Um, the, the pressure of Zoom, so being face-to-face -face with people all the time. Um, some interesting studies showing that, for example, having face-to-faces uh, for five, six, seven hours a day, the, the, the cognitive load of trying to have face-to-face -face conversations with people um, for that length of time and not giving people a little bit of a break um, Create stress for us because human human interaction puts a cognitive load on us. One of the other pieces of research that's quite interesting is that people are having to make more decisions. So in the office, perhaps you would rely on routine on what I'm going to do next, perhaps, 
or you would work as a team. So that, so you would have to make less decisions because there would be some shared decision-making in the office about what was going to be done and how, was, how it was going to be done and who was going to do it next. All that decision-making on what work am I going to do now? How am I going to do it? Is it good enough? Um, how much am I going to focus on a particular thing? You having to make those decisions. And if you look at neuroscience, every time you make a decision, um, there's a theory that says that we've got a limited number of decisions in us before we hit an exhaustion level. So decisions are quite taxing on us from a mental energy perspective. So, so now suddenly you're having to make a number more decisions per day than you were used to. And so by the end of the day, uh, if you're like me, uh, around five o'clock, I find I'm just mentally shattered. It's so hard to even make a decision on what do I feel like for dinner? Um, uh, you don't feel like particularly chatting to perhaps the family or anything at that point in time because you've had face-to-faces the whole day. So at that point in time, I can feel it. I'm, I'm really quite knackered. No, no, I, I definitely agree. And uh, I mean, we didn't even chat about this, this term to the decision fatigue, which, is, which has also been coined in this COVID era now that we, me and my wife are listening to uh, a podcast beginning beginning of last year uh, just just about this term kind of being thrown out there before south africa went into go we're like okay this is quite an interesting thing and 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 she goes you know what I, I really feel that because they started working from home really quickly where the office that she works and she says well, by the end of the day just deciding on whether i'm going to go to bed in the next 10 minutes feels like a big decision and you have a finite capacity of how many of those you can make each day. And I mean, our brain makes decisions all the time. I mean, we make thousands and thousands and thousands of decisions all the time that we don't even think about because they happen automatically. But now from a neuroscience perspective that we don't have clear breaks in our day, we don't have clear routines that, that we used to have. For example, the, the routine of driving to work in the morning, you've got 30 to 40 minutes or maybe an hour, depending on what your traffic was like. That was, time that you could spend by yourself doing whatever you like to do and relaxing getting to work get to work and you've got a set amount of time that you know you're going to be working and you're going to be in you're going to be focused and then again at the end of the day you've got that time to drive home and then kind of decompress after having your day you get home see your family have dinner now all of a sudden that time has just disappeared yeah. and what has happened Where's that time gone? Everybody, almost everybody, all my clients at least, have shifted that time into working more. Being more work. And, and the natural breaks in the day are also missing here in here. So if you're in, a, in, a, in an office working with someone, you would take five minutes perhaps to walk to a meeting. Um, you would stop and have some coffee. You would chat to someone along the way. So there's, there's small but subtle breaks. Um, which allow you to kind of what I call state shift, move from one mental state into another mental state. So you would be able to almost mentally pack away what I've just finished and, and prepare myself for the next meeting as I'm walking towards it. Okay, what's this meeting about? What do I have to do? So what's happening now is like people literally at the click of a button go from one meeting, boof, drop into another meeting. And, and some of my clients are saying they've been double or triple booked um, in their diaries. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to, simultaneously be in two meetings at the same time. So watch a couple of minutes here, then jump across 
Now you imagine trying to mentally deal with that type of thing. Um, and there's this, there's this funny toughness around, yeah, but I'm tough. I can handle it. Um, and that's part of what we actually wanted to chat around is the psychology behind how people are dealing with it. So people are working longer, harder, um, trying to out-tough this thing, um, which doesn't make sense. So there's a couple of terms that we wanted to look at. You did you found a really interesting paper on a, on a concept called moral injury. I found that really, really quite fascinating. Yeah, so, so delving into the world of, of COVID fatigue and, and frontline workers and and stuff like that. I've, I've got a family member who's a frontline worker who, who's a doctor and just just in the last couple of months really seeing how, I mean, I remember when she was in med school and, and how hard it was and how hard they were working and it was very tough. But at the moment, it, it seems tougher than when she was in med school, which most people say that's like the toughest time in their careers when they had to get through med school, studying, doing rotations. But I, I can see the drain in, in this family member more now. And then when I started reading up about it, I found this paper regarding moral fatigue, specifically looking at frontline workers first. And it was this whole, this whole topic around what is the psychosocial effect on frontline workers at the moment when they have an overload of COVID patients, the hospital is split into COVID wings and isolation wings. They, have to, they look like they're going, I mean, the amount of gear they've got on just to go into these wards. And then there's not enough ventilators. They have to start triaging patients like it's a war zone. And this is where this concept of moral injury started coming out because now you've got someone who, who's not a war veteran, someone who's not been trained to specifically work in a war zone, but they've been thrown into one. Now there's a, a, a misalignment between their morals and values and the decisions they've got to make. So now they've got to start triaging patients. They've got to take a person who's 70 years old off a ventilator because their chance of survival is less than somebody who's 45 years old. Now, now that that problem there with saying my values don't align with this i've signed up and i've been trained to save lives all of a sudden now i've got to start deciding who's going to live here and who's going to get taken off a ventilator and, and effectively die and this moral injury that it that it causes to people that they start feeling extreme feelings of guilt they start feeling as if they can't forgive themselves and and it's very strange that the doctors start having to deal with this. And the only other time they've really seen this are with war veterans. For example, people coming back from Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan and, and those kinds of places. But it's different feelings that, that are possibly leading to extreme anxiety, PTSD for, for healthcare and frontline workers, and self-harm behaviors. There have been cases where it's gone that far that, that people have had to get really get a lot of help. So this whole concept of you're not getting physically injured, you've been vaccinated against this disease, but on a moral level, you are being ripped apart every single day. And you have this innate ability to help others because you are extremely gifted at, at being a doctor but now also you don't have a choice of not going at all because if you don't go, people will die regardless. So it's, it's a very tough moral situation that these frontline workers are sitting in. 
So it's it's I can only try and imagine the not not just the physical load but the mental load on on these frontline workers at the moment, and it it must be extremely difficult, especially going into this third wave that we're in going into now. Yeah, the um is another term. Is another term that I'm hearing. I'm hearing lots, a lot. Um, a lot. It took me a lot to get my head around it. And they talk about toxic optimism, and you probably even said it yourself or experienced it yourself. So maybe you're feeling um like you want to come, like you're down a bit. Um, perhaps you're battling with the workload or physical fatigue. Um, you're tired. You're a bit depressed. But instead of allowing yourself to process that like you would normally with a healthy emotion um, of, of, of almost allowing it to go, okay, so, you know, this is normal. What's this about? This is okay. So so being okay with with where you're, you're at, there's this game people are playing with at the moment where they go, no, I'm not allowed to feel that. So we start saying things like, you know what? I shouldn't complain. I'm lucky to have a job. Um, managers are saying to their team perhaps, you know what, guys, don't complain about the long hours. There's other people who, who don't have a job, who are losing their job. You know, at least we've got a house over our head. Um, at least we've got food on the table. At least our company isn't closing down. Um, we should just be happy with what, what we've got. And we so, so that lack of permission, interestingly enough, to, to process what I'm going through. So, so what is guilted if one feels a bit down or bad? And 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 this very cheerful, optimistic, yeah, don't worry, it'll be fine, we'll get over it, everything's going to be wonderful. It sounds like such a good message because we we often encourage to, to be optimism, optimistic and the, the whole concept of optimistic we know is important with with resilience. There's a, there's a strong link between optimism and resilience. But this toxic optimism, interestingly, is, is, is not very useful at all. So we... We need to be aware of that. Of so, what's the process then? Well, the process would be allowing somebody to to acknowledge what's going on for them. That yeah, I am down at the moment, or you know what, I'm I'm not feeling great about this. I, I am tired, and to say those things with a with a sense of acceptance, without feeling like I need to just wallpaper over it with with some optimistic comments. Um, and and then the fine balance is to is to notice those to work with them, but not to let them overwhelm you. And I think a lot of what what helps with that is what you feed on. And, and I know that that this is something that, that that you're very careful about. Yeah. So so there's there's two comments. Uh, I first want to ask you a question. So when it comes to this toxic optimism, and especially in the corporate environment, don't you think there's a there's a leadership part to it as well, that that leaders should, should tell their their employees or their staff that that look, don't always have to be completely positive about everything all the time. It's it's we need to talk about these things because I feel like yeah. when leaders don't allow their people to do that, there's a lot of stuff that just kind of gets swept under the rug, and there's a lot of uncertainty from staff as well, saying, look, uh, am I allowed to feel this way? Um, am I allowed to be anxious about going back to the office? I'm not really sure how this is going to happen. So, do you think there's a there's a leadership component to that as well? Yes, there's, there's such a lovely example of one of my clients where 
one of the leaders in the organization in a in a town hall that they had um, spoke a little bit about how he battled over the last uh, year, how he'd been tired and at times de- a bit depressed, and he found it difficult to motivate himself, and how he was often exhausted from the endless meetings. And the feedback from the organization was, wow, that's that's such a relief to know that I'm not the only one um, going through this. That that here's a leader in my organization saying they've also battled, they've also found this challenging. Um, it makes it more more real, it makes it more personal. It gives me permission to go, okay, so I'm not abnormal for feeling like this. So I, I think that uh, giving space to have a, talk, a chat around it, to talk about it, um, to not feel like we have to taboo that conversation because maybe leaders are a little bit afraid if we, if we go down that way, all this stuff's going to come out and I don't know how to deal with it. And I think it's just a safe space to chat, sit and chat around it. Um, in my coaching clients where we've had coaching groups and I get leaders together, for example, in small groups where we, we chat through what's on their mind and what's happening in their teams, they want to talk about it, um, want to chat around how do I find this balance, for example, between supporting my team because there's this guilt now um, that, that this trap leaders are finding themselves in around. I want to support my team. I want to acknowledge the situation. Yet at the same time, I've got certain people who I don't feel perhaps who are carrying their weight. So, but how do I know now? Do I push the accelerator? Or do I hit the brake with this individual? Do I have a tough conversation around they need to step up their performance? Or what's happening in their lives maybe that I'm not aware of? Um, and what's required from leaders at this point in time is to step into that space a little bit more. The one-on-one conversation becomes more and more critical, like really, really knowing your team where they're at understanding what's happening for them and the different circumstances that they're under, um, that then allows them to have an open, honest conversation around where you're at. Um, what's your current load? What's your thinking? What's your feeling? Gives them more information then when they have a performance conversation, which is one of the hardest things to have at the moment under the current conditions. Yeah, and I think those the way we look at performance, or not we, but the way companies look at performance I think they're going to have to change, to, to be quite honest, in the way that the world has changed and in the way that people work now. And I think that performance conversation is always difficult, but I also think the way performance is going to be measured needs to be maybe looked at again. Um, those metrics and the way they do things, they have to be adjusted. The whole world has changed. So I don't think you can use an old system for a new, for a new environment. So... I think that's that's going to be very interesting from a leadership perspective. Way they're going to do that. So, but the but the other the second point that I, that I was going to mention was about what do we consume. So so what we consume from a from a media perspective, what we consume from a social media perspective. I mean, what we consume and any information that we're taking in. I feel at, at this stage in the in the COVID era is is very important to be on top of um, because we started the conversation off with like COVID fatigue and stress and, and, and guilt and, and we all have a, a finite attention span or attentional load that, that we can deal with on a, on a daily basis. And this attentional load, as you mentioned earlier, sitting on a Zoom meeting and maybe just popping from one meeting to the other, to the other, to the other, it's very difficult, and 
And, and I'll tell you why from a, from a neuroscience perspective, why this is so difficult. So when you, when you think about this sitting on MS Teams or sitting on Zoom and, and you're trying to pick up all the information, now in a normal meeting before COVID, you'd be sitting in front of a person, you can pick up their body language, you can hear all the subtle changes in their voice a lot better. You can pick up so much more emotion just in general from that setting. Now you've been thrust into a world where you can only see them on their screen. And half of the time, let's be honest, on a Zoom meeting, there might be 10 people. You don't see anyone's face. It's just them talking. So you've got even less information for what they're doing. So your brain is working overtime to pick up on all the little subtle cues. So that's, for example, why an hour Zoom or team call can feel like three hours when you're done. You feel drained when you step out of there. So Number one, you losing your attentional span is going through the roof already, just being in all these Zoom, Zoom or team meetings. Then we are all consuming way more time on screens, even more than what we used to. So we're spending more time on our phones, checking news, checking social media, whatever, more time con conversing with the computer screen. And then on top of that, you're throwing on all the different stresses from, from COVID and checking all of that. So it's almost as if, all this media and all this screen time is really draining people. And you mentioned sleep earlier. Now, that's going to affect the way we sleep in a big time. Because if you're working until 8 o'clock at night and you want to go to bed at, at 9 o'clock, for example, you've been looking at a blue light screen for maybe 12 hours of your day, whether it's your phone or the screen or the TV, for example. Now, you're already going to be affecting how your body is producing things like serotonin and melatonin and you're affecting the circadian rhythm of your body. So just that one little thing will affect your sleep. And that will change your quality of life. Huge. So, for example, we are very aware of this in our, in our household that we try and get rid of screens by an hour and a half before we go to bed. Don't check email. Don't check messages. Don't read, don't read news. I, I'm, I'm guilty of sometimes checking that news 20 minutes before I go to bed. And I try so hard now not to do that because all of a sudden your mind gets going and we want to try and avoid those things. So th there are little things that, that we try and do to help that. And, and, and I mean, I can tell you the difference that if you get into a good routine that your body starts learning this new rhythm and you start prepping your body, oh, we're going to go to bed now. And it really works. So that sleep routine becomes integral to your well-being because your sleep's got to be so key to all kinds of recovery, whether it's yep. mental, physical, health-wise. So you've got to think of your bedroom as like the, the shrine in the house. It's got to be kept squeaky clean. It's, we're going to try and remove all the all the noise out of it. So you want to try and keep it cool. You want to keep it noise-free. You want to keep the light down. So all those kinds of things want to be so important to try and recover on a daily basis, especially when you're sitting at home, working at home all day. You don't have that break anymore. Yeah, I agree. The You know, that that conversation about optimism uh, reminds me of of a theory called the, 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 the Stockdale Paradox. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It comes from a, a very, very interesting chap, uh, Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was a Vietnamese prisoner of war um, in a prisoner of war camp called the Hanoi 
Hilton. Um, so he he was there for, for a long time. And afterwards, when they interviewed him, they spoke about the number of prisoners who had survived versus those who hadn't survived. And what was the the thinking behind those who had survived versus those hadn't who hadn't. And he asked the they asked him the question, so who died first? And his answer, interestingly enough, was the optimists. And they were quite shocked by this. So they said, what do you mean by this? So he said, so the optimists were those people who believed I'm about to be released. It's going to come next month. Um, the American government's going to negotiate a release for us. So I'll be home by, by Easter. Or I'll be home by Christmas. or I'll be home by, by the 1st of July. And then that didn't happen. And that over-optimism broke them eventually. So they lost hope and, and, and died. Then the next ones who were the pessimists, who just had no hope, who'd given up, um, also didn't succeed. And, and then there was those ones in the middle who, who were cautiously optimistic, who, who, who had a long-term hope of, I know we'll get out here, I know I will survive this thing. But instead of focusing on, it'll all be over, things are going to change, things are going to go back to normal, kind of mentally prepared them for, I've got to just focus on the next little bit. I've just got, uh, I've got to focus on, on what I need to do now. And it fits so nicely with, with what we're seeing at the moment around like accepting the circumstances going, I mustn't just keep working like I am thinking I can do this temporarily. You know, I can put up with this um, because it'll all be over soon and then things will go back to normal. And I think that's the biggest trap is this feeling of things will go back to normal. I think it's far healthier to start going, how do I work with my current situation and improve it? If this is going to be kind of the new normal for a while, let me make this work. So I love your suggestion of creating a routine and sleep such a big one. Um, I'm finding people are compromising sleep more and more because they're working long hours, but you still need a little bit of time for self. So then they're, they're exhausted. So they'll sit and watch TV at night longer than they should. Um, and so that compromise space there is, is sleep. And, and the hassle with that is then the next, the next day, even if you've slept enough, your, once again, your cognitive decision-making is down. So lack of sleep compromises hormones, compromises decision-making ability. Uh, your your feel-good brain chemicals um, are lacking. So, so over time, you put less and less energy, you're more depressed, you make poorer decisions. Those are all signs of I'm not getting enough sleep. I love the idea of, of filling in. People are giving out such a lot at the moment. Um, and whether that's why people are giving out, that's a whole different conversation. It might be that they feel they've got to protect their jobs at the moment. So I've got to work twice as hard as everybody else to keep my job safe. It might be that they feel, you know, that's how we're going to beat this thing. We're all going to outwork this, this situation. There might be a little bit of feeling guilty. Um, you know, I've got a home, I've got a job, so I have to work. So people are trying to outwork this thing. So, so companies are quite happy because actually performance is up. People are working longer. People are doing more. But at some point in time, you're giving more, but we're getting less. So what I mean by getting less is it, it, it's this whole concept of balancing recovery with output. So if you look at a, 
top athlete like you i mean you've been there and you, you were an athlete yourself if you look at olympic athletes you and i've worked with olympic athletes what makes a great athlete is not so much their ability to work hard but it truly their ability to recover so athletes who have high recovery rates are able to quite quickly train hard again so your ability to keep improving in your performance is directly relatable to your ability to recover. So you'll find an athlete will push themselves incredibly hard in a training session. And that's what we see. But then they will go and spend four, five, six hours working on active recovery, um, ice baths, massage, eating right, sleeping, relaxing, rebuilding themselves, allowing their body to recover so that they go into their next training session, even if it's the same day, they can push themselves really, really hard again. So the degree to which we can swing to one side, which is the, the performance, is related to how far that, that pendulum then swings to the other side, which is recovery. The problem with working like we are at the moment at home, we're not athletes, but the pendulum is almost stuck on the one side. We, 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 we out, we're trying to outperform this thing, but we're not allowing the pendulum to swing back, which is, the recovery and the recovery is a couple of things it's physical recovery so are we sleeping are we eating well are we getting up and moving around are we allowing ourselves uh, an opportunity to to physically recover and mentally recover from that time but there's also like a bit of an emotional recovery um, which is um, finding space where i can just reflect a little bit so people are, find, are saying, you know, I'm getting online at 8 o'clock and I'm not getting off till 8 o'clock. And I'm interacting with people. Whole time. So I don't have time to stop and think. I don't have time to stop and process what I've done during the day. So there's no, that's also a form of recovery where we kind of work through what we've done during the day. We remember what we need to remember. We kind of mentally file it away. We work with it. We think about it. That's part of recovery. And then I think there's also emotional recovery, which is, the stuff that makes me happy, the stuff that makes me feel fulfilled again. So, so we've got an energetic output because we're working so hard and we're giving so much and we need an energetic input. So what's the stuff that fills us up, that regenerates us, that revives us? Um, and people have often stopped doing this type of thing. So this might be because of certain COVID conditions where we can't perhaps travel as much as we wanted to. Perhaps we can't spend time with family like we, we wanted to. Maybe the sport or hobby that we, that, that really we love and that energizes us and makes us feel so good, we have less access to. But here's a great question. So what can you bring into your day as part of your routine that fills you up, that gives you energy? So I think the, the one thing that, I mean, you mentioned this, the sport aspect and the, me myself being an ex-professional athlete is that there's something that, that athletes do that, that most people who are not athletes, even in their work lives, don't necessarily do. And I can tell you that when I was competing and playing, my day was scheduled from 6 a.m. to about 9 p.m. So I knew exactly what I was doing for literally almost every minute of that day. And people think, oh, but that is so rigid. That is so rigid. You can't do that. You'll, you'll become anal about things. And, and 
I wholeheartedly disagree because I knew exactly when I was doing what. So that told me when I could relax, told me when I was going to work. It told me when I had to focus. So doing it in that way, it actually made me more productive. And I still do that to this day. My day is scheduled. Every Sunday, I sit down and I go through my whole schedule for the week. I schedule times for development. I schedule times to exercise. I schedule time to relax. I schedule time when I see clients. So doing it in that way, it, it gives me a clear plan for when are my times to recover, like you mentioned. It's not just, oh, I'm going to relax now. So then I can yeah. actively do that. And it's, it's, it's something like, I mean, uh, I, I joke, I've asked my wife this question. So, so what does your day look like? Oh, no, I'm going to work. Okay. Cool. Great. Yeah. I, I thought so, but what, what exactly what is it going to look like? And having it in that way, it, it creates those boundaries, even now, which I think is so important in the time that we're living now, that if you don't say, look, my work day is, say, for example, eight to six. Okay. So in that day, I've got to get all this done. So let me schedule it through increments. Say I'm going to have a work session 8 to 10. I'm going to take a 15, 20-minute break. Let my mind refresh. Okay, what is the next thing? Cool. going to work from, say, 10.30 up to 12.30. Then I'm going to have lunch for half an hour. So things like that can really help not only to be more productive, but also to know, okay, cool, the day ends at 6 o'clock. Then I can recover. I can rebuild and I can repair. So whether you want to exercise then or you're someone who likes to do yoga or listen to music or, or whatever you like to do to recharge and recover, then you know when you're going to do it. So it's like you're looking forward to something. And I found that's, that's something that, that can really help. It's a very simple thing and it's, it takes some discipline to get into, but it helps everything because then it helps your sleep cycle because then you know I'm done at this time. I'm going to go to bed at this time. So it, then it helps break the monotony as well of just working from home. Which, which is, so the clients, the, and I agree, because the clients that I'm working with that are managing most successfully during this time are doing exactly that. So there's a conscious decision and choice to, to do certain things in the day. So whether that be you get up a little bit early in the morning and you do your meditation and your yoga if that works for you, or you exercise in the morning perhaps. Um, to maybe take a break during the day. Like I, I'm a big one for not eating in front of the computer but while working. I, I don't believe that's great for our digestion. It's not healthy for us. Um, and the mental break of getting there. I, I like to suggest go out in the sunshine sometime during the day. So maybe spend take a 15-minute break, make yourself a cup of coffee, and you go sit outside in the sun. So you've got the added benefit of getting outdoors in the garden, having a little bit of sun, which is has so many extra health benefits, which we've spoken about before. Um, if you find commitment hard, um, there's a couple of things you can do. Like in the morning, it's easy to commit to stuff. What, pe what some people sometimes do then is they find it harder later in the day. Maybe they mean to go exercise at 4 o'clock or they want to walk the dogs. Put it in the diary, first thing. Secondly is maybe commit to an external. So perhaps your, your partner in the house, the kids or something like that, if you make a commitment at 4 o'clock, we're going to go together. Now you've got that 
extra benefit of it's not just you. It's easy to compromise. We go, oh, let me just rather finish this document or this report or whatever. If you know your kids are there, if you know your partner is waiting for you, that that extra external commitment really, really helps. And I'm, I'm hearing some people, some of my clients saying, I book myself a Pilates class or I still do a workout with my personal trainer um, and it's booked at a certain time in the day. And that that extra external commitment of someone's going to be on my case that I'm not there or not doing that helps a little bit. And then the boundaries of walking away from the computer at a certain point in time. So practically, I'm a big believer in having a workspace. So you, that your where you work is a particular place in the house. It shouldn't be your lounge. It shouldn't be your dining room table. If if you can, not everyone has the circumstances, unfortunately, but to the degree possible, have a workplace and then walk away from it. And that now becomes your commute. You know, you step up away from your office or your desk and you, you go somewhere else, which allows me to be in a different mental space. And then don't come back there unless you have an agreement to come back there. So some people do that. They might stop work at six o'clock. And then maybe just at half past eight, they quickly come back to the laptop and check, are there any emergencies, anything that I need to do? Um, if you feel the need to do that, then limit it to 10, 15 minutes just for the critical stuff. I also want to suggest, instead of setting up hour-long meetings, I've suggested to quite a few of my clients to set meetings that are 45 to 50 minutes in length. So if you book 15 minutes, interesting enough, Mentally, people go, okay, I've got 15 minutes. I can get this done in 15 minutes. So meetings tend to expand or compress to the time given to them. But by making your meeting 45 minutes, it gives you that little 15 minutes again before you start your next meeting. And that's just that space to stop, reflect, take a breath, go to the bathroom, get up and go for a walk, write down some notes, send off an email, and then we dive back into the next meeting again. So st staggering the day like this um, helps tremendously. Also knowing, like, when am I better at what things? So am I better at meetings in the morning or in the late afternoon? When am I better at meetings that, that well, not meetings, but work that requires high concentration? So can I still structure my day, if I'm in control of it, to what suits me better? Perhaps when I am more tired, I'm... I'm, I'm doing certain things that require less focus and, and energy. If you think along these lines and you start going, control my day. So I love your analogy of think, think like you're an athlete. I've got limited time, limited energy. The more I can manage it, I can still get all the other stuff in. So I've got the high performance, but I've also built recovery into the process. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree because I, I like saying to my clients, so, why is potential only limited to professional athletes? That's yeah. it's just a mind shift you you got to try and make. But potential is everyone's got amazing potential, but you got to figure out what's the best way to get to your highest potential level. And yeah. you you got to do some self self reflection. You got to maybe work with someone to help you figure out what what those things are. You might want to make one or two lifestyle changes over a certain amount of time, but Potential is, is not limited to professional athletes. So if you're working in a corporate job or in any job, you're a professional. Why, why does it have to be only professional athletes? So 
I think it's a it's a very interesting thing that that people can. I like calling some of my clients they're like brain athletes because I mean that's how they earn a living. They've got this amazing 1.8 kilogram mass that controls everything that they do. So why can't you see that as your professional athlete? So it's and it's it's amazing like. There's certain things, I mean, I read a really interesting article on resilience last week, which which just mentioned what you said as well about the meetings, the Zoom meetings, that Zoom or team meetings, that meetings don't have to be an hour long because we could schedule an hour. There are two things I found in the study specifically regarding meetings that have increased dramatically in the time of, of remote working. And one is there are more people on meetings than ever before. So the one thing they found because mm. people just click on a link and they're in the meeting. And number two, the meeting stayed longer than ever before. So it's not necessary, firstly, to have so many people in a meeting. And it's not necessary to have such a long meeting. An email is still an amazing thing. You can still use it. You can get so much done with a well-constructed email. So yeah. if, if those are little things that they can look at, try and incorporate those. But, but the one thing I just wanted to mention when it comes to, to the resilience is that they, I mean, they did this study over 16 different countries. They had almost 3 million responses uh, for population size. It was about 3 million for the study. And it was amazing some of the things they found because they did it in the time of COVID. So it's a completely new resilience study. And they asked all the people that participated how many things changed in their work life or how many things changed in the time of COVID and 96% of people said yes at least one thing changed but for many people five six seven eight things changed in their in their work setup and the way that they operate and what they found was that the more changes people had that had to be made the more those people believed that those changes would not go away. So there's a new normal, effectively. And the amazing thing is that the more changes people had, so they, had, they found that the sweet spot was around five, five changes. So if the person had five changes or more, they were 13 times more resilient than the people who had less than five changes. And quite often it was because these people embraced the changes, said, okay, these are the changes and we find the best way to work within these parameters now. So they were like, okay, I'm not overly optimistic that, oh, I'm going to work from home all, all the way, all the time, or, oh my word, I never want to work from home. So they, that, that what you mentioned earlier about being too optimistic and being pessimistic, these were those people that kind of found that sweet spot in the middle. Mm-hmm. And they just became more effective at their job in the time of COVID. So it's a lot to be said for embracing change and also taking a step back and saying, how can I make this change even better? And it's a mental shift. And, and these people were, were just faster at getting there. So it was just a very interesting study to see because what they also found was that these people specifically worked at companies where the leadership was doing these kinds of things before COVID. So they weren't scrambling to understand what was expected of them. They've always had very upfront leadership. They were always told that these, this is what's going on. This is what we need to do. We are struggling. So let's deal with the struggle and get better. 
instead of not knowing. So that uncertainty aspect wasn't there for them. So they had open lines of communication. They had good ways of, of getting through these things and working together to build resilience. So that, that social support aspect from a workplace was, was very interesting from the study because one thing that people often don't understand when it comes to social support, the more you give other people social support, the more you actually personally benefit. From a molecular level and a hormone level, you actually benefit even more than the person you're giving social support to. So that's without people knowing that this was even happening. So it was just an interesting part to, to resilience that, that no one's really ever looked at. It's like, yes, people who are resilient are good at adapting, but these people were extremely good at adapting and just seeing that change, change works if you do have a good mindset about it. I love that. So, Renier, like really great conversation today. Um, I, I, I really feel that now we're at a time where we need to talk more about this. So, like you say, organizations where people are willing to step into this conversation um, to, to engage in, in the not how do we go back conversation because I think that's, that, that's not a useful conversation, but around so what is the next iteration of, of life is, look like? How, how do we take the lessons that we've learned from, from the COVID world into the, into, into the future? So it's a great reflection question. Um, maybe to to almost end on it, if you think about what you've learned over the last 12 months, what are the biggest lessons life's taught you? What has COVID taught you? What has being at home taught you? Um, how will you take that forward? I, I would say the how I would take that forward is that we all we all knew that change happens and that's like the only constant. Change is mm -hmm. always there. But I think to a large extent, people didn't really understand how big and how fast things could change. Mm. And the, the big thing I would, I would take away going forward is that people are extremely resilient, mm. extremely resi resilient, and they can adapt to any situation if they apply themselves. So not being that crazy optimistic, but, but being realistic and saying, we have changes. Let's make those changes. Let's adapt and go forward. And that. th that's one of the big things that I've learned. It's okay. Let's let's be upfront and honest about this. Let's get it out in the open and let's move forward. Because I the one that. thing that, that the people that I've definitely also learned through through this time is that you must be allowed to grieve because grieving doesn't always just happen if, if someone passes away. Grieving also happens when something is never going to be the same again. So grieve about the things that used to be. We live in a different, in different world right now. Grieve about the fact that I cannot go and watch the rugby when the Lions are playing against the Springboks. When the British and Irish Lions come, I will not be able to sit in the stadium. That is fine. It sucks. But it's okay. Deal with it. Talk about it. And let's move forward. And, and I think it's so, such an important thing that I realized in this time is that you have to talk about the things that you struggle with. And there's nothing wrong when you're struggling with it. You will adapt, but you've got to face things. So I think that's the that, biggest thing that I've learned is that face those things that, that have changed, face the, thing, the things that are difficult, 
and let's mm -hmm. figure out a way to move forward. When I'm when I'm working with a coaching client, like one of the things I one of my questions that I, I like to ask is one day when you look back at this, and, and you, we will talk about these times in the future when we look back at those COVID years, what would you look back at and reflect with um, around going, wow, I really learned this? So this is for all those listening. So you can stop and ask yourself this. I really learned this. What would you say to your kids like in 15, 20 years' time when they ask you about the COVID years? I really learned this, and I'm really proud about this, and, and this is what humankind learned from that. So that, that, that future back of what was the lesson that mankind learned from COVID that, that just changed everything? So, yes, I, I think the, that ability to, 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 to take what we need to take out of it is so important. But I, 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 I love your sentiment around uh, it's such a human thing, like allowing yourself to be human during this time. Don't, don't fall into the trap of trying to be a robot. Be perfect. Get everything done. Keep up your performance the way you did beforehand. Allow yourself to be human. Notice the emotion. Feel the emotion. Talk about it with others. Um, do the things that energize you. Um, make sure that you're looking after yourself physically. We're not robots. Um, we, we're physical beings, and we need to nurture ourselves and look after ourselves. If we do those things, we can keep moving forward, which is uh, so important at this time. Yeah, Karina, I really the, yeah. just one more take takeaway just in this time that we've all been so isolated to an extent please pick up the phone and call someone because hmm. i found that is one of the biggest things people have have stopped doing just because you can't see people anymore doesn't mean you don't want to talk to them so facetime them give them a facetime say how's it man how are you doing just yeah. something small like that can make such a difference to someone's day and it's something that that you must consciously do because it's or because we've been all so isolated. We only see the people really that we interact with every day and we don't think about some of the other levels. So just pick up the phone and call someone you haven't chatted to or thought about and say, like, how are you doing, man? Beautiful. Renia, as always, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you. So um, from Mike and Renia, it's cheers from Mike. Cheers from Renia. And we'll see you again soon.